Well, as an investor, you need to look at the industry that you're investing in, figure out how are you going to have an edge? What are you going to do better than any other financer in the industry? Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. I'm really excited to have our guest here at Solar Power Northeast in Boston. It's John Chai Manis. He is the co-founder and managing director of Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure. He joined the firm in 2012. His work focuses on all aspects of the business, including deal sourcing, financial structuring, and asset management. Prior to Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure, Mr. Chai Menes, John, uh, worked with the subsidiary of Edison International in California, where he developed and acquired over 500 million in energy projects, installing 250 renewable energy assets. John has also published and lectured to universities on the topic of energy markets and renewables. Prior to his career in energy, John founded a charter school. He holds a BA, he holds an MBA, sorry, from Babson College and a BS in finance from Villanova University. And I think this is going to be a great perspective because, you know, John's an investor in projects in the U.S. and could really provide a lot of interesting insight. Thank you, John, for being on the podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Benoit. It's a pleasure to be here. John, can you talk a little bit more about Kendall's sustainable infrastructure and your background before that more than, you know, what we spoke about? And also, as a private equity firm that's investing in projects, you know, what are the investment parameters that you're looking for? And I think, too, you guys are unique as well because you get involved in the development as well, because obviously you you and your team have extensive development experience before, and you've developed a lot of projects, which I think is unique, and you could offer a lot of value and insight to your developer partners that you help. And then I know you scale it by getting that first deal done, which is always the hardest with one developer, but then continuing that relationship. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'll start by sharing a little bit about KSI, Kendall Stainwell Infrastructure which we started in 2012. And it was really the the confluence at the time of an opportunity that had been developing. The independent power producer world had really been focused on large utility scale projects up until that point in the States. And what we saw was projects were getting smaller and more distributed, just like we've seen a distributed economy evolving and happening. Distributed energy has become a much more realistic opportunity. And in a large part, it's been enabled by technology, the ability to remotely meter, uh, net metering, advanced metering systems. And then solar really in particular has been a, a great boom for that because it can be quite modular and valuable that way. Solar is not the only thing that KSI invests in. We also invest in other sustainable infrastructure projects. So small hydro, things like wastewater treatment. We've looked at some energy efficiency as well. There's quite an v- array of things that KSI invests in. But the basic topic that we really focus on are markets that are a little bit more inefficient, markets that are smaller. And we look to deploy capital on the scale of $1 million to maybe $10 million at a, in a particular discrete investment at a time. And when people think of infrastructure traditionally, that's way below the radar. And that's really been part of our, our niche. Definitely. And can you talk about, too, like when you partner with developers, 
how are the different ways that you help them as far as like adding value? So not purely just, you know, financing the project, but it seems like you also get involved earlier stage when you think like a project is potentially a good investment opportunity. You're willing to work with developers and add value to the process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's unique and we're actually seeing that more common in the industry as well, where, you know, developers are looking help from financial providers to provide value in the development process and life cycle. Well, as an investor, you need to look at the industry that you're investing in, figure out how are you going to have an edge? Um, What are you going to do better than any other financer in the industry? And what we look at are our people, uh, processes, and knowledge transfer. So we're really looking for teams of people, developers that, that we, we like, frankly, that we can work well with, that we trust. We're looking for processes, scalable, repeatable processes. And then knowledge transfer. We want to share our knowledge with developers. You know, we're not your traditional Wall Street investment banker, and we're not your typical, the cheapest cost of capital coming in, you know, looking to everybody trying to fight for every penny where maybe the, the contract ultimately becomes a weapon where you promise the lowest dollar or the top dollar, And then every twist and turn in the road, you try to carve back a penny or half a penny and get back to it. We want to do repeatable business with our developers. So looking at my background and what I've seen in the industry, I come out of the independent power space. So I'm not a true solar guy. I'm definitely a renewables guy. But in fact, the company I worked with prior to starting Kennel Sustainable had a very large coal footprint. So I really learned how the power industry worked from the inside out, from the very traditional fossil sense. And when you look at that, you can see where are, the, where are the opportunities. And we worked with developers, and I saw different ways that developers were managed and things that went well and things that didn't go well. And what I learned is that, number one, has to be respect and trust. We spend a lot of time negotiating purchase and sale agreements, putting together contracts and how things are going to work. And you know, many people put together joint ventures where they've got an operating agreement or an LLC agreement with all the rules of the road. And what I've found is that that's really great when you're sitting in the boardroom trying to figure it out. But in almost every deal I've been a part of, within five days of signing that paper, something (laughs) comes up that you didn't think of in that contract. And that's when you figure out who people really are. That's why for us, relationships are the most important thing. The people that we're going to be working with, that we're going to be partnering with, collaborating with, we want to make sure that we can trust them and they can trust us and that ultimately we're going to be able to do, as you said, multiple deals together. The, the first deal is always the hardest. There's a lot of, you know, this is the way we like to do things. This is the way that somebody else has done things. How do we find a middle ground in a way that's efficient? But ultimately, our objective, and we've got some great track record with a number of development partners that we are continue to work with in setting up a process that's repeatable and scalable, and then we just sort of run. And then the closing, the second, the third, and the fourth project we don't need to get other parties involved. It just becomes a very simple commercial closing, checking the boxes. Sure. And it, it's almost like we're part of the same organization at that point in time, which I think is very unique in the finance space. Definitely. And I think that's huge. That's a great point about, you know, it's about relationships and trust. And that applies, you know, business relationships. And that, I feel like, is the core tenant. I think it's an interesting point, too, that you mentioned about um, developers negotiating with investors at a certain sort of development fee. And then once they go through the process, they get negotiated downward, which is very common in the industry. 
And I think it's about really finding real parties that you could work with, that you have that relationship and trust, and then could work through the various issues. But I know, you know, some developers get, and I've seen this happen many times, get excited by extremely high development fee, but it might not be a real player, or, you know, a company has a history of negotiating the development fee down, which if it's obviously, you know, a situation where the economics have changed fundamentally, then obviously, you know, that makes sense. But there's some investors out there who, for small things, will start reducing the development fee, which then is not repeatable because the developer then, you know, has concerns about basically bringing other projects. So that's a great differentiator, I think, in the industry. Yeah, it's a tactic. I think of it as a zero-sum game in the long run. Everybody wants to see the top dollar, the biggest number. We all do, right? Everybody yes. wants it. You get excited about it and you think, well, at least I can maybe defend my position long enough. We try not to have those types of conversations with our development partners. We try to have very frank, open, you know, open book. Here we are. This is what we're trying to do. And again, in the long run, we just want to treat people with dignity and respect. And we want, we want the same on our side. And that's really been what makes coming to work every day fun. You know, we're a small company. We're growing. We're expanding. We are a fund. So we're a fund investor, which means we have committed capital that's discretionary to us. And you, as you mentioned it, there are a lot of groups that purport to have capital, but they're just looking to get control over a project and then they're going to go find the money somewhere on the back end. That's a huge thing. I mean, that's kind of what I was alluding to when I said real investors, because like, you know, there are people who are saying that they have the money. And then basically once they've got a developer under a letter of intent, then they're looking for the capital, which is not really like a trustworthy and honest way of doing business. So unless you're obviously transparent in the beginning about that. That's right. Yeah. There are all different ways that people are trying to be successful. And, you know, we wish everybody all the best. We just, you know, we want to do business in a little bit different way. I want to talk, I'd love to share a little bit, yes, about sure. how we work with developers during development Definitely. and how that maybe is different. So our ultimate objective is project asset ownership. So during the long run, having a project in operation and owning it for its life. But we're not your typical show up to a bid when a project is ready to go type of investor. What we really want to do is we want to work with developers during the development process to work the kinks out of projects. We're problem solvers. Number one, first and foremost, we are problem solvers. We're not problem identifiers and then say, you fix it or we're going to reduce your price. But during development, we say, hey, let's fix this one thing. This isn't perfect. Maybe this land right can be improved or this phrase in this contract can be improved. And by being a part of the process of development, because it is very much a process and a lot of decisions are made, we try to be consultative, but not overbearing. And I think that's a really important concept. Uh, you know, I have seen joint development relationships where the finance party is very overbearing. Maybe they're involved during development, but they're quite overbearing. Yes. You know, we kind of say, hey, these are consultative. Here are some suggestions. Here's how we would do it. These are some better ways. We bring our experts to the phone, to the conferences and sort of share and transfer that knowledge. And in some instances, we've been able to work with developers on you know, maybe some development capital if there's a, you know, a really good relationship that we can form inside of that. That's a big part of our business is helping developers grow and evolve. Some of the best relationships that we've had are with either EPC contractors or developers that have been in the resi space 
and folks that are looking to integrate into other areas. Maybe they haven't done distributed generation projects before. Maybe they haven't done the full development process for a project. And we can really lay out the roadmap. Uh, we've seen it so many times. You know, we own over 40 assets at this point in time. Many of those we acquired in a very quick, short period of time because we we're just on such a good sync with our development partners at the time. Sure, that's huge, and that makes you able to move very quickly on projects. Can you talk about recent projects that you have invested in? And you know, I was curious as well. Um, you invested in a solar portfolio in Vermont that was community solar. How have you, as an investor, as well, gotten comfortable with community solar? I know, by, by the way, that that's two questions. I'll try to get to the most. Sure. Um, we did the community solar project in Vermont with our partner Sun Common at the point in time who we think very high of. They're great folks. We'd love to still work with them. And it was one of the first community solar portfolios built in the, I know. at the time. I mean, it was 2004? That, which is uh, 2014, excuse 14, me. 2014, yeah. 2015. It was a great portfolio. Good example of a group that was doing residential solar, looking to get into distributed generation. Sure. So we liked the idea of community solar because in principle, what we think of is you're taking risk on not so much the customers, there's some risk in the customers, but you're taking risk on the servicer. Can the servicer continue to bring people and backfill people as there's some churn involved? Therefore, the servicer becomes the key point. It's not a commodity product, Definitely. but it really is, is who's providing that? What is their reputation in the community where you're working? Development, in my opinion, is it's very difficult to be a great developer all over the nation. You think it's a very regional game. Definitely. It's very local. And, you know, it's very common for residential installers or to move to commercial, industrial, or utility. It's just a natural, they have the relationships. And usually you find the local developers' acquisition costs for customers are a lot lower than the national providers because they have that relationship. And they're in that area, so people know who they are. So that's pretty interesting. It's amazing that you guys have owned a community solar project for, what now, four years, five years? Well, the, it's 15 projects. It was 15 small projects, that's I right. remember. Can you talk about, as an asset owner, you know, you're probably one of the few parties out there who've owned a, a community solar asset for that long. What have you learned from that experience? Because I'm sure, you know, it was a learning curve. You mentioned a great point. It's about the servicer, how they could fill the churn. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, it really keeps coming back to the people matter. We've been very fortunate in that we think we do our homework on the front end. We do good due diligence. But, you know, the servicer, they've always been there. They've always taken care of the projects. You know, and we haven't had major problems. Sure. I think great. a lot of it, in, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but a lot of the community solar, it depends on how those products were sold and what was promised to the customers. And again, by being involved throughout the process, we can see what's being told to the customers and, and how they're being treated. And, yes. and that makes a big difference because not every community solar project is the same. Definitely. I mean, it's funny just because you say community solar Every estate is unique in its own way. And then obviously even acquiring the customers, the terms and lengths. And so it's pretty interesting to kind of hear your experience. Can you talk about trends that you're seeing in solar? I know obviously you guys are looking at different markets and looking at a lot of different projects from a lot of different developers. Can you talk about some you know recent trends that you're seeing? I know we talked about a couple of them before the podcast interview, and I thought it was really some interesting insights that we haven't heard on the podcast. Absolutely. So we were just talking about community solar. 
as an evolution, I think it was a really great thing to happen to the industry in that you can build a project and you could split it up 30, 50, a thousand different ways to residential participants that can buy a share. And if they go away, you can replace them. It's expensive to manage the churn. And that business is, you know, something that needs to be balanced properly. And that's probably the biggest risk in the system. There's something that's come up recently, which is the zero term contract for community solar. And I think that's a really bad idea. The proponents would say, this is really great because people can come and go. They're going to come and go as they please. Sure. You know, how are you going to force a 75-year-old person to stay in this contract for 25 years? And, you know, you can see that as a sales organization, and I make that very clear, it's a sales organization that's focused on receiving compensation the day that a project goes in service. They want the easiest, quickest thing to sell. From an asset owner's perspective, these are 25-year assets, and you're mismatching the length of the asset, duration of the asset, with the duration of the contract. And solar and wind and renewables have been financed with power purchase agreements, long-term power purchase agreements, for the certainty of it. Because the price of power, at a certain point, if it goes down, your investment becomes inverted, right? The typical investor is waiting somewhere between seven to maybe even 12 years, in some cases, to break even. Yes. That's a long time to break even. Definitely. If the power prices can invert in that period of time and they're not what your projections were, your asset is entirely underwater, underwater and that sure. got pushed out tremendously. So I think that, you know, the other analogy that some proponents would say is, well, it's just like retail electricity and we've got retail suppliers and retail yeah. suppliers come and they go and they sure. sign you up for six months or three months. And But the difference is, is retail suppliers are buying their power forward maybe two months or three months, maybe four months at a time. They're not buying 20 years worth of power, you know, to make the illustration again. And the biggest fear is that as the cost of the product continues to decrease, you know, solar power installations get cheaper, the next project that comes online is cheaper. So guess what you're going to sell your power for when everybody churns? The market rate. The market rate, yeah. which is the rate that the next project is sure. coming online at. So that's one trend that I see that I think is a bad trend. I don't think it's, I don't think it's prudent. I think some people are going to finance it. I think some people are going to get there on it. I just hope that as an industry, we don't go head over heels like we did for yield cos. Um, <laughs> it was another thing that, again, we identified in our organization that this is an unhealthy way to do sure. business. Can you talk about like, what is the yield co? What happened? Obviously, very briefly. Uh, sure, uh, sure. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, <laughs> you opened Pandora's I box. Did. All right. So to, uh, to recreate history here, a yield co, uh, which were generally publicly listed, were invented or they were financial type of investment that was put together and it was to own and operate these solar projects, which makes a lot of sense. That's what a lot of people do. There were a couple of problems with it. First of all, it was done with public money and you know it was sort of sold to the street as a growth and a yield play. And, you know, basic business, it's very difficult to be growth and yield because if you're growth, that means you're reinvesting in your business. And if you're yield, that means you're kicking out all the dividends. So you can't be both. That was sort of one, which is a fatal flaw. And, you know, really the way that the investment banks pitched it to the street was probably not as, as well thought out as it could have been. Definitely. The second thing was most of these yield codes were owned by development companies. Development companies make money the day a project goes online. Their goal is to get a project out of development and put it into service, and then they make a development fee. 
and then they go on to the next and on to the next. So their cycle of money is six months, nine months, et cetera, and then they make their money back. Maybe they make two, three, four times their money on that particular project. They're not really looking for the long run. But what they did was they owned yield codes. So they were motivated to sell as many projects as they could to this captive vehicle with other people's money, no matter the cost. And what we found were yield codes were the development companies were selling to the yield codes, which they controlled, although there was in theory some separation of powers, but it really wasn't that separate, at lower and lower rates, meaning the development company was making bigger and bigger profits while the yield co was taking a longer time to break even on their money. And then at the same time, the yield co's were sort of burdening themselves with more debt and then going to the public markets. So every time they used up all their money, they would issue a bunch of debt and then they would go to the public markets. Well, it didn't take long for Moody's and S&P to catch on before they downgraded one after the other after the other of being on the risk of insolvency because they're so locked up with their debt. So those are a couple of things. I'd call it conflicts management, maybe misalignment of incentives, and this belief that you could be a growth and a yield play at the same time. Definitely. Close-ended funds that raise a pool of capital, that invest that pool of capital, that can work because you're saying what you're going to do. It's going to be a yield. Sure. So those are yield calls. But I, I'd love to talk, if I could, about going back to... Um, some of the seeing. trends that we were talking about. Another two other trends that we spoke about outside of the first trend, which is an interesting perspective and, and great point. Yeah, the uh, community solar. So the other one is, and this is really a message to the solar industry, we're selling our product, electricity, at a discount. And I can't tell you the amount of developers that come into my office and tell me, yeah, we're selling the power at a 30% discount to the retail power. <laughs> and I just look at them and I say, are you selling retail power? And the answer is yes. And I go, well, why aren't you selling it for retail power? Yeah. Any other business operator in the world would sell their product at the market price. It's the way that the oil industry works. Sure. You sell to the market price. If you can generate and produce more cheaply, you get more profit margin. In solar, somehow we're bent on giving it all away. Yes. And I think as an industry, that is a very poor thing to be doing. Number one, it devalues what you do. Individually, as a proprietor, you're saying my product isn't as good, so you have to take it for less. I mean, everybody wants a savings. And, you know, a certain minor savings to maybe the retail power is not a bad thing in a contract to have. When you start looking at deeper and deeper discounts, I just don't see how it's a sustainable business. Who makes money in that industry? That's true. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, it's interesting because... Um a lot of other industries would actually charge more. Your third-party energy suppliers are charging you more residential for renewable energy. So why, you know, in this situation when you have a solar project, that you should be giving some discount to the retail rate? And I think most customers now are a lot more educated about solar, about climate change, are willing to pay the same price or even a premium. So I think that's a great point. Why should, especially a deep discount, when you're talking about more than... 10 to 15%. That just seems like a lot to give up, especially because that's the highest sort of um, revenue for the project. So, And I think, and you know, I, I love solar. I love being part of this industry. It is one of the most exciting, quickly evolving. People are motivated and energized. And, and so many of the folks in the industry are, really believe in what we do, which is wonderful. 
I just think we need to pause for a second and look at what we're doing as an industry and say, we're mature industry. We're grownups here. Sure. Let's not give away our product. You know, just to put it in another context, I mean, the way that wholesale power is traded is generally there's a something of a reverse auction, right? They call yes, it. Yes, definitely. And there's a price taker concept. So the market signal is sent and it says we need this much load. And then the nukes show up and they say, well, I'll take whatever price is given. And then the coal guys say, well, you know, in Me Too, I'm baseload, I'm here. But the gas guys are saying, well, I can't come online until I know I'm getting $15 or $25. Yeah. So then the price goes to $25. And then the market says, that's great, but we still need more power. And then the peakers come on out and the peakers say, well, I need $60. And then they fill up all the demand, at which point the market price is set. And everybody below that gets $60. Sure. You know, and as an industry, I think it would be good for us to understand, have a more mature understanding of the way power prices are actually established. I think that's huge. I think uh, your previous background in energy really kind of helps you to understand that, or maybe most of the people in the solar sector don't really have an energy background prior to that. So I think that these are great points, like, you know, how electricity prices are determined and, you know, how natural gas projects determine a lot of what electricity is going to be because, you know, that's the majority of sort of the fuel source that's out there. So I think that these are great points and interesting points that you're bringing up that, you know, I haven't actually heard within the industry. So, and I also as well have a background in fossil fuels as well before I got into solar and other renewables. So it's great to kind of hear your perspective. And I'd be glad to hear yours on these things too. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I, I mean, mean, I, I think, great I, I, I think I agree with you as far as like, I think as an industry, this is going to be even bigger and bigger as you combine solar plus storage, people are going to have to understand the electricity markets a lot better. And then understanding obviously the value that storage brings to the grid and reliability combined with solar. So I think people really have to start paying attention to the wholesale markets and to the value streams that standalone storage, but solar and storage combined will add. And and I think, uh, you know, this is a great thinking for the solar community to kind of think about. And how do we apply that when we look at projects and trying to make it work? Yeah, we want this to be a truly a sustainable business. We want it to last, and it, it's going to be bigger than any of us. I mean, oh, definitely. you, you keep know seeing the, you know, the charts <laughs> that come out. You know, they're like, in 2006, we thought we'd be at X percent. In 2009, we revised our forecast upwards <laughs> yeah. by 3X. And, you know, they just keep revising the forecast up and up and up because these things make a lot of sense. Solar plus storage make a ton of sense. Yeah, and it's going to be a huge opportunity that's going to go for years and years if you look at the percentage of solar actually on. Yeah. Right now, it's pretty small. Have we, have we hit a percent in the United States yet? We probably just broke a percent. I think we just broke a percent. So really, like this, the next 50 to 75 years, especially when we reach grid parity in most states and you're not dependent on incentives, that also is, is a game changer. And obviously, costs keep coming down, the efficiency of panels as well, and uh, then combining with storage. And once storage gets more affordable, wind and solar as an intermittent power source, now you're able to use at all times with when you have storage. And obviously storage has other benefits as well 
it's pretty interesting what, what's happening in the industry. And then I think you had one more point or was that, uh, or do you want to? Yeah, no. Um, you know, the other. For trends that the, you're seeing in the solar. Yeah, the other trend or maybe commentary on policy. Policy does support changes, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, you need policy to support a change from A to B. No matter what that change is, I think those frameworks are really important. In the states in particular, and maybe globally as well, you know, we see different types of policies. And you know, each in the United States, we're very unique in that we don't have a single national energy policy, which is really unique globally. That, right? that Most is, countries have yes. a single energy policy. And we've got 50 states. And 50 unique. Um, and 50 unique uh, <laughs> policies. And even inside of some states, we've got some variations. Definitely. And then obviously you have to then as well work with the different utilities in the utility service everybody area. Everybody acts the same. They don't act the same. So there's a whole as well. No. Let's say if you're working in Massachusetts with National Grid, it's totally different from another utility within the Massachusetts service territory. It, it certainly matters. The The one commentary I would I, I'd put or the one observation I would say is, the concept of a, a declining block of an incentive, it makes sense. It's rational, you know, that over time you kind of wean off of an incentive or a program. And that, that makes sense. Some of the incentives that, that I've seen that don't, that are harder to make sense of are ones that are incredibly, incredibly front loaded. You know, I can understand a, a grant, maybe, you know, we're trying to drive down the cost. But in the long run, you know, some of these things, Illinois is an interesting market because we're all drawn to it like a, like a moth to a flame right now. But, you know, you're getting, they have a nice rec program and the recs are 15 years worth of recs. But for some reason, they've decided to pay them out in the first three years, yes. three or five years, over a very short period of time. So you get this incredibly weird cash profile. You're getting all this cash up front. And then after they drop off, you know, you're getting de minimis amount of value for your power. And these are supposed to be power projects, not incentive projects. Sure. You know, so things that are overly front loaded, they kind of blur and they distort both markets, pricing, you know, and, and they make it, it make it more difficult. So for any of those policy uh, creators that are listening to this podcast, please consider long-term incentives, maybe a declining block, but try to match the incentive with the duration of the asset. Definitely, I think that's a good point. And two, you're not. You also have to consider too, like the cash profile with the federal, you know, investment tax credit, and then you know, five year maker depreciation. That's a huge amount that you're getting. There's already a lot you're getting out of the gate. Gate, and then you're including a rec incentive. Those are interesting points. And about declining block, like obviously the smart program in Massachusetts is structured that way. They kind of use the megawatt block program in New York as an example to do that. So these are really interesting trends and perspectives yeah. that you're you're bringing up. So thank you. Some of the harder ones you bring up in New York is, you know, this when you put the capacity value, the distributed capacity value of an asset into the Vitor stack, right? Sure. Which is this value of distributed energy resource pricing that changes any month. <laughs> yes. Right? And it's capacity and you know, the capacity markets are first of all pretty ill-defined. And second of all, very ill-defined at the distributed energy node. It's a very difficult thing to understand, for, difficult thing to finance. So we can understand from, a, from the owner's perspective, from the IPP perspective, if you will, the policymaker's desire to have the value of the energy resource valued at its, what it's worth at its point in time or place. But there needs to be certainty in order to have a robust program. Definitely, that's a good point. And I think that's been challenging for New York 
you know, New York is going to be a great market, but I think a lot of financiers, with the complexity of Viter and it not being a long-term sort of cash flow stream, it's really halted a lot of investment and development. I know there's a lot of, obviously, projects in the queue and projects are getting built that were based before the Viter net metering or Viter 1 or something with the transition market credit really kind of depends. I don't want to get into all the complexities related to it, but I think that's a great point for policymakers to look at it from a financier's perspective on what's bankable. Then, you know, theoretically... At the end of the day, right, these are 20, 30 plus year assets. And investments. And investments, right? They're, right the capital doesn't go in just because you feel good. Yeah, definitely. It has to obviously return a certain amount for the investor. They have to get some sort of fixed cash flows to be confident to meet their return requirements. So I think that these are great points, John, that you've mentioned. And this is great perspective. You actually talked about storage a little bit. I don't know if you want to talk more about storage and the opportunity. And are you guys actively as well like everyone else in the industry trying to figure out solar plus storage or even standalone storage <laughs> um, <laughs> and all the conferences out there on storage. <laughs> well, I've shared a couple of perspectives today. Uh, you know, I think standalone storage should be owned by utilities. I don't think there's a market for a merchant standalone storage product. If I had my way and I could orchestrate it, I would have all of the utilities get what they wanted and let them own the storage, let them rate base the storage and have them increase their allocations to net metering. And that would be the bargain that I would put out to all the utilities. You can own as much storage as you want. You can rate base it. You could bring back some healthy revenues to your company, but you have to allow some more net metering on the grid. And I think, I, I don't just say that because I love this, you know, I love net metering because I, I do, but I, you know, I think about it. These batteries, as you said, these are not generation devices. These are multi-purpose devices that provide power conditioning for sort of a broad strokes phrase, power conditioning to the energy on the grid. They have the ability to act reactive power. They can provide reg up, reg down. They've got incredible abilities to do many of these important ancillary services, which a merchant generator, it's very difficult to make a business case around doing that. It's a regulation service, after all. It should be treated as a regulated activity and should be earning its regulated rate of return. The basic math behind a, a storage, if you want to own it for generation purposes, is you need to buy power at half as much as you're going to sell it for. Sure. That's in order to make what you otherwise <laughs> would have paid for it, <laughs> for it yes. right? I mean, that's just a simple equation. It's basic math. That's a really hard to find that arbitrage Definitely. opportunity. And, you know, with demand response and with the decreasing capacity values that we see, because we all now know that if you shut off during the peak, it helps everybody. Well, those arbitrage opportunities are getting smaller and smaller. Sure. So you'd almost be sort of stepping into a decreasing margin business the day you went out. Now, solar plus storage is an incredibly different situation or wind plus storage. To the extent that you're producing electricity, the thing about electricity is you can't store it. Generally speaking, when you create it, it needs to be used. The vast majority of all the electricity used in the United States, globally, electricity is used the moment it's made. Oil, for example, you can store it. You pull it out of the ground, it's a store of energy. You can move it, you can transport it. Energy is very hard to transport also. So storage with an intermittent resource is a very powerful concept because what you're able to do is if you're producing electricity when not much is being demanded, you can then time shift 
and the ability to time shift has value. Sure. That's really interesting insight, and I, I totally agree. We're going to kind of move topics. I wanted to get an idea of what made you start your own company. Uh, you joined Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure, and you're one of the co-founders. What made you uh, move to you know entrepreneurship and continuing to stay in distributed energy? Sure. You know, as I really look at my life, I, I guess I probably have always been an entrepreneur. Pretty much one year out of college, I started a charter school. So I was a founding member in a charter school, and it was uh, an inner city school. It was very mission-driven. We had nothing but our charter application that had just been approved by the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> and uh, it was up to us to create the business. So I set to work, and really my role was creating the business aspect of the school. I ran all the business and operations, effectively the CFO of the organization, you know, we doubled in size twice while I was there. We moved buildings, you know, all these logistical, um, the financial things involved in it. I went to business school. I went to Babson, which is very well known. It's globally known. It's number one ranked for entrepreneurship in the world. Yes, the three Bs, the specialty. Yeah, Babson's definitely known as the number one entrepreneurship. And you also guest lecture as well, right? Uh, I actually teach a class. Oh, you teach a yeah, class. Yeah, I started teaching my class about two, three years ago. I co-teach with another gentleman, Bob Goodoff, who's a... Uh, one of the greatest people I, I've had the pleasure to work with. That class is called Valuing and Financing Sustainability. So we talk about a lot of these things. Sure. Uh, we actually deconstruct a Yield Co. in class. It's oh, really, really cool. I would love to see this. It's, if you like yeah. to nerd out with spreadsheets. I would love to be invited to listen. In, I'd like in to here. invite you to speak. Yeah, definitely. I would love that. I mean, I've done some guest lecturing. So it happens on the Solar Maverick podcast. Here we go. <laughs> Consider it done. So, you know, after Babson, when I started Babson, I identified immediately I needed to focus on what my career was going to be next after education. It was sure. a really great thing, but I wanted to pivot. I identified renewable energy at the time. This was sort of my aha moment. It was, quote unquote, peak oil was happening, and I was getting National Geographic magazine at the time. And I'll never forget, I, you know, you open up National Geographic, and it's got the foldout in there. And the foldout was this uh, wind turbine blade. You know, it had like 75 people standing shoulder to shoulder. I was floored at the size of this thing. I couldn't believe it. And I said, this is science fiction. This is really work. And at the time, it was all getting done major scale in Europe, all the sure. major banks, BNP Paribas, HSH Nordbank, Dexia, NordLB. Sure, the big European. And I said, well, if the big banks are doing it, this isn't just a cute thing. This makes money. So I set to work right away. You know, I worked at um, a local uh, wind development. I created an internship. They didn't have an internship. The Mass CEC wasn't around then sure, for internship programs like we have in Massachusetts today, which is a great program. And I just fell in love with it. I had the, uh, the good fortune to move out to California, work with subsidiary of Edison International for a while, worked with some very, very smart people, some of the most uh, inspiring people I've worked with ever. I learned so much from them and I'm eternally grateful. But I always knew I wanted to do it. So when I came back to Massachusetts, I was just sort of networking around, talking to folks. My business partner, Ken Lehman, had been running Kendall Investments at the time, private equity firm, doing a variety of investments, had done some infrastructure at the time, some desalination, sure. was very interested in getting involved in renewables, and there was just sort of a, a perfect meeting alignment at that point in time, Definitely. where you know there was this burgeoning market of the distributed generation. We were known, we had, you know, Kendall Investments had some knowledge. And, you know, we put together Kendall Sustainable and really wrote the business. And it's been a lot of fun. It was slow. 
very slow. Uh, <laughs> like any entrepreneur will tell you, there were definitely bits in the beginning where I had to fill with consulting work and sure. you know doing other things. But we're at the point now that we've raised our second fund. We've got a nice organization of folks. We've got some really talented, very fun people that we work with, very smart and motivated. And um, we're just having fun. It's all about having fun. And that's interesting hearing your story. What suggestions do you have for you know anyone looking to be an entrepreneur? This show is not just about solar. It's also about entrepreneurship. It'd be great to get your perspective on that. So my path was... I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I knew what industry I wanted to be in, but I didn't have the knowledge. So I worked for a while first. And I think that's not a bad idea. To go out and start an advertising company cold might be a little hard. But if you work in the ad space for a while and you learn as much as you can, there's an incredible value in that. It's much more valuable even than going to school. And I think that's one thing. The second thing is perseverance. And you really need to, every day, put your hardest work in. And every day, be a better you as you're going through it. And not look and say, well, why hasn't it happened yet? But you need to visualize and realize it will happen because you've, you know, you've set a good goal, because you've put your head into it, and you're following through on this business plan that makes rational sense. And I, and I think that's the other part of it. And don't get me wrong. There are some ideas that are just so far out in left field. But sure. <laughs> hey, look, there's SpaceX. And you know, yeah, that's happening. Yeah, definitely. You need dreamers and people who are willing to uh, push the envelope. And obviously, everyone probably laughing, you know, at Elon Musk. And it's amazing to kind of see, especially, you know, I'm a former Solar City employee. Look at that. And uh, worked for Elon's uh, cousin, Lyndon, when he was in the Project Finance Group. So it's just interesting. You need those dreamers out there. It's interesting, too. Um, John, this has been like amazing podcast and really great, like, suggestions about and advice about the solar industry, learning your story. And then the interesting part of this whole thing is actually John and I met maybe six years ago or seven years ago from actually John's childhood friend, Rob Spina, because they grew up actually in Queens and Bayside. And Rob and I were actually roommates down the Jersey Shore, uh, 209 Moore, Spring Lake, New Jersey. (laughs) So it's pretty funny because you never know where a contact or relationship will come from. So then, you know, Rob said, kept always saying, oh, my my childhood friend, John, he's also in renewables. I got to introduce you guys. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, all these years later. And actually, today is, is Rob's birthday. So it's pretty funny. And he's also a listener of the Solar Maverick podcast as well. He started listening since the first episode. So you never know where you can meet and where connections can come from. Some of the most unexpected connections. <laughs> yes, yes I, I think it was at this conference that we first met. Oh, connected. we first met, yes. And this was when you first kind of started the business. We were with starting Ken. and you were starting? Yeah, I was starting at that time. And yeah, we met at this conference yeah. maybe four to five years ago, actually, at this point. So, and here we are. Here we are. So uh, yeah, you never know where you can make a connection. It's all about branding. We were just joking before the podcast. John's got this beautiful Kendall sustainable infrastructure sort of over like jacket and I'm wearing a Renew Energy vest. So, uh, and we're talking about how it's great for marketing. So, you know, you never know where you could or how you could come up with an opportunity. You don't know how many people have come up to me when I'm wearing Renew Energy gear and asking me about the company and I'm able to build a connection and in totally public places like at an airport or at a restaurant or something like that. So just life, you never know where, where opportunities can come from. 
John, again, this was an amazing interview. You know, I would love to interview sometime soon. I think you have a lot of, you know, interesting points and, and things that we haven't heard from the industry. I really appreciate your time here today in Boston, the podcast. I know you have a very busy day coming up ahead, and I appreciate you making time for being on the show. Benoit, well, it's a privilege and an honor to be here with you, and I, I really have enjoyed this and uh, our friendship and uh, you know the opportunities that, that you're making happen in the space, too. It's really something else. I'm really proud of the things that you've accomplished, too, over this period of time, and this podcast is just another example of you know making it happen. So, uh, again, thank you very much for, for having me. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, John, as well, and it's been amazing to see your progress as well as fellow entrepreneurs and to see the growth of his company and, you know, how many new people and projects that you guys are working on. And obviously, you know, we're talking about partnering on a project that we're developing and hopefully, you know, KSI will be our partner in it. So thank you again, John, and thank you for being on the podcast and thank you to our listeners. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. Thank you.